Morning, everybody. Morning. Hearing? Yeah. Good. I just, uh, on the way over here, uh, saw beautiful, I think, morning glories. Did you see those? Uh, I didn't see them before. I think they're morning glories, low, right in the grass. They, they respond to the sun, so uh, you don't see them really when it's not very sunny. Quite startling. You can see a lot when you just have your gaze down. Also, uh, when you have your gaze down, uh, you look up sometimes, right? Then you see more. So seeing less, you see more. It's really true. Uh, here's, uh, here's my poem for today. This is, this is a, a Shurangama Sutra poem. <clears throat> There's no seeing, not seeing. To see not seeing, what would you see? But neither is there seeing, seeing. How could there be seeing to see, since only things can be seen in light or as light. Not seeing itself, which knows no self. But if there's no seeing to be seen, how does one see objects in the light or mind in the dark since darkness hides every mark, and how could mind be elsewise if it's yours, or anywhere other? Because where in creation could one find a location within which mind is parked like a tricked-out van? So there's no seeing, and no mind that ran away with you on vacation, yet you imagine a world appears exactly as it really is, and you live as if it were so. I better read that again. <laughs> Once more. There's no seeing, not seeing. To see, not seeing, what would you see? But neither is there seeing, seeing. How could there be seeing to see, since only things can be seen in light or as light, not seeing itself, which knows no self? But if there's no seeing to be seen, how does one see objects in the light or mind in the dark, since darkness hides every mark? And how could mind be elsewise if it's yours? or anywhere other, because where in creation could one find a location within which mind is parked like a tricked-out van? So there's no seeing and no mind that ran away with you on vacation. Yet you imagine a world appears exactly as it really is, and you live as if it were so. So uh, we're reading together uh, continuous practice, and, and Dogen keeps making the point over and over and over again 
that we should follow the examples of the ancients and absolutely trust the practice and trusting it that we would continue it all the time beyond the realm of reason and practicality. There is, of course, a place for reason and practicality, but mostly, I think, we grossly overestimate the need for this, and we give it way too much credence. The world is beyond the world. The actual world is beyond the apparent world. And yet it is the apparent world, and that's the paradox we were talking about the other day. The world as we know it, through our senses and our thinking and feeling, is a kind of spell, an enchantment that we've all fallen into. Nowadays, we see some pretty extreme politics in the world. And you might wonder, how in the world can people believe in such outrageous things? It seems so manifestly to be not true. It is astounding and very disturbing. And yet, the rational world when we overestimate it, is truly astounding and astonishing in just the same way. So it's not surprising. How is it that we go on earnestly making improvements and seeking solutions to problems when we have seen so many times that every solution leads to a new problem. And that anyway, in the end, we are all going to die and everything is going to disappear. And it is disappearing constantly, every single moment. It's very clear that to live in peace, we need to go beyond the ordinary life and clarify who we really are, and what this world really is. And that's why we sit down, and we breathe, and we just pay attention. And we need to keep on doing this continuously. We need to realize that to live in this way, loving the world in our very unknowing, and loving others, and being fully present with every moment as if it were the last is always the most important thing. And that everything we really need will flow from this spirit. I think I said the other day, of course, of course we make a big effort. We're all making a big effort this week and we make a big effort every day in our lives. But there really is nothing to worry about. Even if the worst were to happen, it wouldn't be the worst since it happened. 
If it happens, we can live with it. We will live with it. And even if we fall down on the job and things collapse all around us, someone else will take up the burden and things will go on in some way. Possibly better than they would have if we had done a perfect job. So, really and truly, without a drop of exaggeration, we can trust continuous practice completely to take care of our lives. And and it is a great joy and a relief to realize this. And this is what Dogen is saying over and over and over again in this lengthy fascicle of his. And the other day, um, <clears throat> I shared, you, uh, the story, shared with you the story uh, from, Gui, uh, from Dogen of Guishan's uh, 40 years of continuous practice on Mount Guay, not establishing a monastery. Here's another example along the same lines. This is from... Dogen's fascicle. When uh, Yangqi became abbot of, at Mount Yangqi, the monastery buildings were old and dilapidated, barely able to provide shelter from wind and rain. It was deep winter, and all the buildings were badly in need of repair. The monks' hall in particular, you know, where they sat, was damaged to the point where snow and hail would pile up on the sitting platforms. And there was hardly any place to settle down. It was very difficult to do zazen there. And the elders of the monastery were so concerned that they made a request to Yangqi to have the buildings repaired. And Yangqi said, according to the Buddha's teaching, this is the time when human lifespan is decreasing and the high lands and the deep valleys are changing. How can we achieve complete satisfaction in things? Sages in the past sat under trees and did walking meditation on bare ground. These are excellent examples of the profound teaching of practicing emptiness. You have all left home to study the way. How can you expect the leisure of a comfortable building? (laughs) Thus, Yangqi rejected their request. (laughs) On the following day, he got up on the teaching seat and presented his poem to the assembly. When I began, this is the poem, when I began living here in this building with crumbling walls, all the platforms were covered with jewels of snow, scrunching up my shoulders to the neck, (laughs) as you do in the cold. I sigh into darkness, reflecting on ancient ones abiding under a tree. So Yangji warms himself 
with the example of the people in the past who did continuous practice. And this is what Dogen is doing for us throughout this fascicle. He's reminding us of the examples of those who have come before us devoting themselves to continuous practice. And I think he doesn't just mean the Buddhas and ancestors specifically. He means all the Buddhas and ancestors, all the generations of the human past who have suffered and lived and died so that we can be here today. Do not forget about them and think only about fancy buildings and nicely planed and varnished sitting platforms. Dogen then mentions that despite the falling apart temple, lots of people came to practice at Yangchi's place. And I have found this to be absolutely true. People come when they can feel continuous practice in the room. They don't come because the room is spiffy and nicely decorated. The house that we live in was given to us by Charles Brooks and Charlotte Selver, who were truly amazing and remarkable people. Charlotte was a member of the Wittgenstein family who lived in Austria in a branch of the family, lived in Germany. <clears throat> she was from the Jewish branch, so she left Germany when Hitler came to power and ended up developing a teaching that she called sensory awareness, which was a new way of practicing the Buddhist teachings about perception and sensation that I've been talking about. And Kathy and I, over the years, often practiced this with her. She taught it for 75 or 80 years, and she was giving classes on her deathbed, literally, when she was 102 years old, in the living room of our present house. Her hospital bed, where she gave these classes, is now where our dining room table is. Charles was the son of Van Wyck Brooks, who was a very famous, when I was young, uh, I knew about him, he was a very famous Harvard literary scholar. So naturally, Charles was a college dropout and a carpenter. <laughs> and, and when he built the house, he had the idea, there's a bug that keeps a, a little ant, I guess it is, keeps crawling on my head, now it's on my finger. Go away, little ant. Free, freedom. <laughs> when he built the house, he had the idea, which he stuck to, that what should happen is the house should be built nice, and then it should gradually slump back into the earth. <laughs> so he never made any repairs. 
He never, he never did any repairs on the house. And by the time we received the house, it was really was falling apart. It had lots of leaks in the roof. The wiring was bad. Everything was really quite dilapidated. And uh, before we moved in, um, our neighbor and good friend, who was also a disciple of uh, Charlotte's and a practitioner at Everyday Zen, he took it upon himself to fix the house up, which he did. And we are very grateful that when we moved in, it was, the roof was not leaking a little bit, not too much. <laughs> but I, I've never forgotten uh, Charles's original intention, which is pretty much the same, you know, as the teaching of Yangchi that we read about here. Everything really does come from the earth. It is the earth in another temporary form, and it returns ultimately to the earth, even and especially uh, this human body, which is the foundation of all of our thinking and feeling. Earlier in the fascicle, Dogen brings up with great approval uh, the example of Zhao Zhou, who once, uh, when one of the legs that holds up the sitting platform in the Zendo broke, he went to the firewood pile and got a charred piece of log and strapped it on to hold up the sitting platform. And when people tried to make a proper repair, he always insisted, no, no, this is good. And I think of uh, in the sutra where the Buddha says, uh, in his old age, I feel like my body is all strapped together like an old cart that's falling apart. And maybe some of our aging bodies are like that, sort of strapped together, held together with glue and a little bit of duct tape, beyond the possibility of any really proper repair. But that is very much in the spirit of continuous practice. Continuous practice clearly does not depend on perfect conditions. It thrives, in fact, on improvisation in response to difficult conditions. Immediately after this story of Yangji, Dogen quotes another Zen master, Fayan, without explaining anything, but it's as if this saying of Fayan's is a kind of commentary to the previous story. And this is the saying of Fayan. Practice does not go beyond thinking. Thinking does not go beyond practice. This is a little surprising. People think somehow you're not supposed to think. And so if they keep thinking, they think, oh, I, I'm not doing the practice right because I have a thought. So Fayan says, practice does not go beyond thinking. Thinking does not go beyond practice. Somehow we find it very hard to accept the fact that our very thinking and feeling no matter how confused or dilapidated it may seem to be, 
is a profound expression of continuous practice. There is no need to repair or rebuild our thinking and feeling. We can profoundly let it be as it is. When we really appreciate this, we can find a path through our thinking and feeling. Maybe this all seems a little confusing and self-contradictory. Okay, we're supposed to let everything alone, not work with our mind, not try to fix our habitual painful thinking, not go to the doctor when we're sick, not fix the roof when it leaks, just do zazen, and that will automatically take care of everything? Or no, no, fix the leak, fix the body, fix the mind, fix the heart. It's confusing, you know? What, 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 what is, which, which way are we supposed to do? Well, with continuous practice, we will really and truly know that, as Ajahn Chah says, this cup is already broken. We will know that, really, really know that through and through. And that changes everything. The body is already dust. The beautiful new temple building that we have fundraised for for 50 years is already a pile of rubble. So let's do whatever we do with full appreciation and full commitment and a lot of joy, always joy, never overestimating things and never underestimating things. So if you're slogging through, defending or protecting what cannot be defended or protected, you should stop and ask yourself, what's going on here? What am I really doing here? Just stop yourself when you feel confused and overwhelmed and ask yourself, what is this? Who am I, and what do I think I'm doing here? With continuous practice, we will know what to do. And if we don't, we know someone else will. And there are no mistakes. Every step taken even if it's a step off a cliff and we fall into an abyss, is a step forward leading to the next step. While we're on the subject of uh, temples being built and falling apart, we also have the related problem 
of dealing with donors. <laughs> so Dogen has a little story in here about that. This is a story uh, in the, that begins the first part, the second part of continuous practice, about how to deal with, or perhaps not to deal with, donors. <laughs> you know this story. Bodhidharma <laughs> went to the capital city of Jinling to meet with Wu, and Wu said to him, ever since I became emperor, I have built temples, many of them, funded monasteries, copied sutras, built ordination platforms to ordain thousands of monks. What merit have I received from all of this good Buddhist activity? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. And the emperor said, but wait, I, I have heard that to practice dana, dana is to acquire merit, so how can it be so that there's no merit? Bodhidharma said, all these are just minor achievements of humans and devas, and they just become the cause of more desire. They're like shadows, not real. <laughs> so the emperor said, well, what is real merit? And Bodhidharma said, when pure wisdom is complete, <clears throat> the essence is empty and serene. Such merit cannot be attained through worldly action. And the emperor said, well, what is the foremost sacred truth? Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing sacred. The emperor said, who is this facing me? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. So this is a very famous Zen story. I'm sure most of you have heard it before. It appears as the first case in the Blue Cliff Record collection of 100 Zen stories. And it reminds me of something very funny I was reading the other day, and uh, I'm reading uh, this book called uh, The Gay Science, which is a book by uh, Nietzsche, who is a very strange bird, that Nietzsche. <laughs> but I like him, you know. And, and Nietzsche had a kind of animus against Christianity. He really hated Christianity. He was constantly railing against Christianity. Maybe that had something to do with the fact that his father was a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> and that he himself had grown up in a very conservative sort of German provincial town and had gone to study theology and become a minister himself until he lost his faith. So there might be a touch of bitterness in his view. But anyway, it's very, it's very amusing. He says, uh, according to Christianity, he says, the world and everything in it, including human beings, is God's donation. And like so many donors, God feels that he deserves some special consideration <laughs> for, having, for having provided us with such a gift and so God demands faith and all sorts of fealty for this gift, especially, Nietzsche says, especially God demands honor and respect. The most important thing God wants is that we should respect and have faith in God, honor God, absolutely not dishonor God. And if you do dishonor God, there will be, so to speak, hell to pay. <laughs> 
So Nietzsche says, what kind of a God is this? But then he says, on the other hand, the Buddhists, he says, because he knew about Buddhism, was very interested in Buddhism. He was not a Buddhist, but anyway, he was, he was very influenced by it through Schopenhauer. He said, the Buddhists, on the other hand, are taught not to pay any attention to donors <laughs> and not to think of them as donors. Since, as Bodhidharma here demonstrates, there is no gift. There's nothing to give because everything is empty and such worldly gifts are only minor achievements, as he says, that support foolish further desire if you take them in the wrong way. I am fairly certain that if you hire a consultant to help you with your fundraising, she will not recommend that you say such things to your donors. <laughs> In fact, she will probably counsel you to have little gatherings, exclusive gatherings for them and to send them letters and holiday cards and pay them as many visits as you have time for. In fact, you would keep a database of them and keep track of how many visits you pay and what happens at those visits so that you can pass on the database to the next fundraiser who can take it up from there. This is called cultivation. <laughs> That's what they call it in the business. <laughs> cultivation, donor cultivation. Right? They call it that. It's the same word that's used in Buddhism, cultivation, to, uh, ex this, to express cultivation of practice. In our tradition, Bodhidharma is one of the most fierce and foreboding of all figures. <clears throat> and I confess to you that I'm not a great Bodhidharma fan myself. <clears throat> in Zen temples, uh, they uh, often celebrate Bodhidharma's birthday. There's a Bodhidharma day, you know. <clears throat> uh, there's a Bodhidharma day in, in most monasteries. And in everyday Zen, we try to keep a schedule of uh, traditional rituals, and somehow we've always forgotten to celebrate Bodhidharma Day. And I myself wouldn't recommend treating donors in that way. But of course, Bodhidharma is quite correct. Because the only thing we really value is continuous practice exemplified by Bodhidharma's nine years facing the wall in Zazen. Donors and donations come and go, but continuous practice endures. To come to the Zendo and sit with devotion, to come not because you feel like it, but because you're devoted to continuous practice. And to do that over time is the most valuable, noble, and important donation 
that anyone can give to a Zen practice place. And continuous practice is not just Zazen and Sashin. It includes also gradual daily cultivation of the way and all the myriad practices of Buddha Dharma, uh, from friendliness and kindness to precepts and ethical conduct uh, to daily mindfulness practice to chanting to offering incense to prostrations and on and on certainly including the practice of dana or generosity. But as Bodhidharma is trying to teach the emperor here, all dharmas are empty and vast. There is nothing to hold on to or aim for. Everything is already broken. So we actually don't practice dana in Zen. We practice dana paramita, that form of generosity that Bodhidharma is pointing to in his response to the emperor. Generosity without traces, without stickiness, generosity that recognizes that everything is a gift, that everything is already broken, and that all gifts are empty of giver, receiver, and gift. So giving occurs out of the abundance of life without thinking that we're doing something special. Who owns anything really? Who gives anything really? Who receives anything really? Giving and receiving are boundless and continuous. They say there are two ways to practice, uh, not practice, to present the practice, to offer the practice to others. This is an old uh, distinction in Zen between the giving way and the granting, the, the granting way and the grasping way. The granting way warmly gives you everything always. The grasping way snatches everything away. And which way you present the teachings depends on the teacher, depends on the student, depends on the time and on the place. And when you study the stories of the tradition, you see that sometimes it's the granting way and sometimes it's the grasping way. In this story, Bodhidharma is presenting the grasping way. The emperor was looking for something. So naturally, Bodhidharma snatched everything away. And he was responding appropriately to the emperor. Of course, the emperor missed this. And he said, who do you think you are? Saying this to me, the emperor. And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. As virtually every commentary you'll ever read, read on this story will say, it's not the usual I don't know. Usual I don't know implies that you could know, or you should know, or somebody else knows. 
But no, this is ultimately not knowing, the heart of our practice. As it says in the tradition, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing, not thinking you understand someone or something, especially yourself. I mean, people you know, get mad at themselves or don't like themselves or something, and I think to myself, oh, you know who you are? <laughs> really? <laughs> we don't know, really. We have ideas, and of course we have to act on ideas, theories of things, but we know that they're not really so. And that's the way we stay close to our life and surprised by our life and really impressed with our lives from the beginning all the way up until the end. I have been uh, having a wonderful time uh, listening to Tim's talks this week. And I especially enjoyed uh, his uh, invention of yesterday. It was quite good, I thought. Relentless reassurance. What a great koan. Maybe some of you have already been practicing since yesterday with this koan. Once a monastic asked Master Responding Gate of Red Cedar Mountain, <laughs> what is continuous practice? Responding Gate said, relentless reassurance. <laughs> Pretty good. Sounds authentic, doesn't it? <laughs> you could imagine, you know. Case 101, a Blue Cliff record. And a half, yeah, 101 and a half, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're saying that reminds me, somebody, when you mentioned Nancy the other day, re reminded us that Nancy would all, often interject in the middle of Dharma talk. She would often <laughs> say something in the middle of the Dharma talk, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I've also been enjoying your... Uh, Guishan stories. I like Guishan too. And I learned a thing or two about Guishan that I didn't know before. I'll probably forget it. I hope not, but I learned a thing or two. And since uh, you didn't bring up the story of uh, <coughs> Guishan and Iron Grindstone Lu, I will now bring up the famous story <coughs> of Guishan and Iron Grindstone Lu. So, uh, Iron Grindstone Liu, uh, Liu Tiamo, uh, maybe she was known as the Grindstone because she was relentlessly reassuring. <laughs> she, she is one of my wife Kathy's favorite Zen teachers. And she was a disciple of Guishan and is one of the very few uh, women of that particular period uh, noted in the uh, records, and I'm sure there were 
many more women teachers not noted in the record. So, in a way, Liu Tiamo stands for many unnamed women. Nowadays, uh, scholars are, are translating the, the sayings of many women teachers from somewhat later periods, so there's more available now. But we have this beautiful story of Guishan and Liu Tiamo. Brief story. Not in Dogen's continuous practice. Iron grindstone Liu went to Master Guishan. Guishan said when she entered the place, Old cow, so you've come. And the iron grinder said, Tomorrow on Mount Wutai, there's a big gathering and a big feast. Are you going? Guishan laid down and sprawled out for a nap. The iron grinder immediately left. That's the story. So another thing about Guishan that Tim did not mention, I always, when somebody says, uh, well, do they believe in reincarnation in Zen? I always uh, quote the saying of Guishan, who told his disciples, when I'm gone, I will be reborn as a water buffalo on the side of the hill. And if you want to know which water buffalo it is, you'll be able to tell easily because emblazoned on the side of the water buffalo in very clear characters, it will say, Gui Shan. <laughs> so he said, uh, if you look at this water buffalo and you say it's Gui Shan, this will be incorrect. It's a water buffalo. But if you look at the water buffalo and say, this is not Guishan, you will also be incorrect. What is it? So when Guishan says to Iron Grindstone Liu, so old cow you've come, he probably means this water buffalo. And you know, the water buffalo, or the ox, sometimes they call it an ox, but it's a water buffalo. It, it's, in Zen, it means the mind. You know the famous ox herding pictures, training the mind, training the ox. In old China, the water buffalo is not an exotic animal. It's the most common animal in rural areas. It's like a pickup truck, you know, in, in the Texas panhandle. Water buffalo did all the hauling, they did all the plowing, and their dried poop was used for heating the house in the wintertime. And in many places in Asia, I think it's still like that. So the water buffalo is an animal very close to Guishan's heart in so many ways. And so when he says to Iron Grindstone Liu, so old cow, you've come, he is really saying, so noble old water buffalo, old Buddha, mind itself, my very heart, welcome to my house. It's a very welcoming, endearing saying. 
she asks him whether he's going to the feast on Mount Tai. I mean, uh, Mount Wu, Wu Tai. But that sacred mountain is 600 miles away from where they are. And there's no rush to the airport, you know. I could, you know, somebody said, are you going to Seattle today? Oh, maybe I will. I'll go to the airport. I'll be there by the evening. But not, no. She's not saying, are you going to the physical place? She's asking a different kind of question. And she's not really asking a question. Because she knows the answer already. She's just sharing some words with her friend. What is time? What is space? Is there any time and space? Remember my poem about forgetting the space-time thought? Guishan and Liu Tiamo have forgotten the space-time thought. Mount Wutai is right here. The ancient days of these old Zen masters are right here in your body, in your breath. Tomorrow and the next day and the day after that are right here in your body too. Past, present, future, here, there, everywhere. Where is anything? What do we think we're doing? What plans are we making? And uh, this is really my experience. I try to go somewhere, but I never go anywhere, you know? <laughs> Wherever I am, it's the same place, here. Where else are you going to be? Here. When else is it ever going to be? But now. This, I really feel that way. Sometimes when I'm walking down that corridor to get to the airplane, you know that corridor? I think, this is endless. <laughs> I've always been walking down this corridor. That's the only thing I've ever done, is walk down this corridor to where they hand me that little square thing of wiping my hands to get off the germs. It's the only thing I've ever done. Every problem is solved or not. Every single thing is complete right here where you are always right now when you are always where you have always been where you always will be in a past, present, and future that is constantly being recalibrated 
And that certainly defies all your concepts and desires in its absolute, ineffable perfection. And just think of all the suffering we endure in a lifetime. Wishing that things were other than as they are. Isn't it staggering? This is what makes us suffer. Whether it's outside you or inside you, I want to be different. I want it to be different. That's my suffering, right? Think of all the times you have been so convinced that some external situation or some internal situation was horribly and completely wrong and unacceptable. You wanted to go to Mount Wutai to the festival, but there was no way you could get there. And you were full of regret and anguish. And there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. Guishan and Liu Tiemo know better than that. He stretches out for a nap right in the middle of the festival on Mount Wutai. The festival is the nap. You can't do better than a nap. (laughs) And the grindstone packs up and leaves. Every step she takes is Mount Wutai Festival. And best of all, occupying their separate conditions and their separate spheres of activity, Guishan and the Grindstone are completely and utterly in union with one another. As far as I know, there's no record, but I think that this is the last time they saw each other. But whether or not it is, It doesn't matter, because wherever they are, they can't help but always see one another. It's really like that in Dharma relations. We are always seeing one another. We cannot ever be apart. We seem to have been talking a bit about sickness, old age, and death. But how could there be sickness, old age, and death if the past and future are always right here? What is old? What is young? Dogen mentioned this the other day. So I close my talk today with another poem. Being old isn't. The bodily sensations are pleasant, 
unpleasant, interpreted in reference to memory, obey the social contract of age, agreement, designation, imputed on reading a face in the mirror, which, with advancing time, in reference to a fixture in the soul of self's melodious repetition, is an object of questioning, searching look in eyes, brightness, chins, slump. All ages persist as one always. There's nor old nor young, but additions in the inventory of resignations, in the fact of the face or as the face, the silence in what comes and goes in and out, the opening, the silence in what comes and goes in and out, the opening. The truly amazing thing about our communities, what makes them so different and strong is that there are so many of us who have been practicing together side by side for 10, 20, 25 or more years. And this is really something special and beautiful. This is also the bad thing about our communities. <laughs> this is also the trouble with our communities. Because somebody new comes and they see this and they think, I will never catch up. You know, it's hopeless. I'll never catch up with all these people. But no, no, that's not right. The whole thing about continuous practice is that there really are no barriers of time or space. That's what we've been saying today. And really and truly, this is not a bright theory. I mean, I know it sounds theoretical, but it is not a theory. You actually feel this. At least I hope you feel this. Every person who comes and does continuous practice with that heart, you know, of continuous practice, is already a Buddha and will be greeted by the Sangha as a respected old friend, even though they just showed up for the first time to session. I hope that we all feel that. Because it's true. Everyone really is a respected old friend. So thank you, old friends, old cows, <laughs> for uh, listening to my Dharma talk. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. May our intention. Be